these uh, these forms, these conventions for awareness. So in terms of uh, maintaining this vasa, it's part of a tradition, and it's also a period where we make a commitment uh, and and with something you enter and something you leave. And, and this is done uh, on the conventional level in Thailand, Sri Lanka, Buddhist countries, and in the branch monasteries in uh, European countries or in the North America, Australia. So it, in this way it, it, it has a, a sense of a continuity from a historical tradition. Common sense says, uh, you know, really, if you're going to establish a tradition here in, in Northern Europe, uh, like the Buddha did uh, according to the conditions in India of his time, then you should, uh, maybe the winter retreat should be the actual period which it also is. We have we actually have two, two, uh, three month retreat periods in one year. But this this we decided to maintain in this form because it, in in terms of connecting to the rest of the world, uh, it makes it easy. Uh, you know, because we it's no longer Thailand is no longer that far away from England. So sometimes Thais from Thailand want to give a katina ceremony. And uh, at the end of our wasana, come all the way from Thailand to offer a katina. So just to not make it into a more complex, difficult situation than it need be, we, we learn to live within the boundaries and conventions that were established in this tradition in India 2,547 years ago. That's interesting with conventions, traditions, uh, because how we hold these or grasp these, because, uh, you know, we, there's, there's so much uh, a ten, ten, uh, tendency towards grasping conventions, or instead of grasping them, just throwing them out the window. So those are the two extremes, you know, you you rigidly adhere to to a tradition blindly uh, or you rebel against it and throw it away. So I'm pointing to the two extreme reactions. Uh, there are in the West, there are those that, that adhere very, you know, cling desperately, wanting to keep it exactly and, and uh, conform exactly to the uh, conventions of Pali Buddhism, Dhamma Vinaya, and the Pali Canon, or Thai forest tradition. And then there are those that think, well, this is, we want to establish uh, British Buddhism, or, you know, this is not Thailand, or this is not India, and, and let's just, uh, you know, the Buddha really just taught mindfulness, let's just use that, and then let's throw the conventions away. But in, this is the, where, you know, mindfulness isn't a matter of, of uh, clinging 
or of rejecting or throwing away. It's the ability to observe what, what we're doing, what's actually taking place, what, what moves us, what is it that moves within us, which can be uh, either extreme. It could be a desperate, uh, blind infatuation and, and uh, rigid clinging, or it can be a, a kind of uh, uh, the opposite, the kind of let's get rid of all conventions, no restrictions, no boundaries. And so the awareness is, is the point of our life when we take on the, this uh, life as a Buddhist samana, the bhikkhu siladhara, eight precepts. These are, you know, these are forms for reflection. So it's learning to use the, the formed world around us, both in its, in, you know, in, in the conventions we have here, the, our own cultural uh, conditioning, the conventions that we've, we've adopted, that we've taken on as Buddhist samanas, the uh, Theravada tradition, the Thai forest tradition, the Tudanga tradition, uh, the Dhammavinya, these are all conventions in terms of the scripture that has been written down and the tradition that we are using. <coughs> So in this word convention, it, it, this includes all formed, you know, the agreed uh, forms that we, that we uh, use for awareness. Now we can, we can uh, project onto the conventions all kinds of, of ideas or ideals, like the purity of our convention or our convention is somehow superior to some other convention, or uh, we are the true inheritors of the Buddha Dhamma, or, or you know, whatever, or we are modern Buddhists. We're, we're, we, do we just do vipassana. We don't even need Buddha. We'll just take vipassana and uh, practice vipassana. So we can, you know, we have the ability to to pick and choose what we like out of traditions and conventional forms, teachings. And then, uh, or we can, you know, we, we can use the convention, conventional forms by taking on the convention itself, rather than just taking what we like from it and uh, I don't trust that in myself, just picking and choosing from the, the Theravada convention just according to what I particularly like or what appeals to me. When you take on something, it's, uh, you know, it takes, you take on the whole thing. Because the, the point is not what I like or what I approve of or what appeals and what what I think is the real Buddhist teaching and what I think is, is not, or it's not a matter of opinion, because 
when I start thinking, when I form my opinions, this comes from a conditioned uh, habit of analysis, of reason and logic and cultural assumptions, education. Scientific thought or even our Christian conditioning can affect how we, we regard Buddhism. <clears throat> and there's nothing wrong with that. It's not, not saying that it shouldn't be like this because this is the way it is. That the awareness is, the, is what we are encouraged to use, to recognize, to realize, and, and to apply awareness to the conventional world that we're experiencing, both in terms of being a, a monk or a nun, in terms of being a man or a woman, of the physical body itself, of, of uh, race, nationality, class, identities of all sorts, or every sort, are conventions that we can see. We're looking at them not in terms of approving or disapproving, but recognizing learning to recognize that all conditioned phenomena is impermanent. That has a beginning and an ending, rising and ceasing. So our relationship then is not one of, of preference, approval, disapproval, uh, but of, rec of discerning. So in this uh, uh, awareness, then we are, the discerning ability is possible. When we're not aware, then we don't discern conventional forms or the conditioned realm. We merely uh, attach to it and react to it. So, you know, we get caught in our, our habits of reactions, of attachments or resistance, liking or disliking. So when, when our thought process is based on this, and we think about things, when I think about what I like and I don't like and approve of or disapprove of, uh, that's very much affected or influenced by the kind of uh, education I have, the cultural background, the, the um, assumptions I make are on that level of, of thought, opinion and view. <coughs> Sometimes it's very sensible and intelligent. Uh, sometimes it's just a bit silly and stupid. But, but uh, you know, it. The uh, sometimes I find myself reacting in very uh, foolish ways to to things. Other times my responses to life are very mature and noble and and uh, and worthy of praise. <coughs> sometimes mixture of both. <laughs> What I'm pointing to is this, to, to, and when we take refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, this is, this is the reality of that refuge. Awareness is the Buddha, the Dhamma is the truth of the way it is.
So like in terms of the Vasa, Rain's Retreat here in England, uh, where we enter enter that tomorrow, um, we may make the, a, a, a determination, an aditana, tomorrow on, into what we call entering the Vasa. Mm. Vasa actually means Rain's Retreat <laughs> in Pali. Rainy season. Mm. So this is, uh, you know, be aware of, of this, uh, you know, both your way your thinking mind reacts to, to this sense of rains retreat in England. It's the best time of the year, best weather, rains the least. <laughs> and yet we call it the rainy season. In terms of logic and reason and being sensible and all that, we can be quite critical of this. Uh, going along with tradition <coughs> and want to change it. But in the, this community here in, in the UK that's been established, we've, we've all agreed to, to go along with it, to, to use the tradition rather than endlessly try to kind of adapt it or, or uh, make, you know, try to fix it in a way that that we think it's more suitable or better than uh, for this particular situation. Of course, certain adaptations are necessary uh, out of just, uh, you know, survival. But because the, the community here has decided to accept this Vasa retreat as part of our conventional form, then then I encourage you to observe that, to, to not, not try to just get caught in reacting uh, to it or blindly following, but, but recognizing, you know, that, that it is what it is. It's a convention, part of a, a traditional form. It's, this is the way it is, this sense of entering something. Now, when I, when I reflect on the entering a bhasa, you know, the sense of entering, beginning something, uh, then I feel this, this sense of something ahead, you know, I'm entering something, uh, and that, that there's this three months that uh, ahead of this, that I will be living here and living with this sense of keeping the vasa, determining the vasa and keeping within that that form for the three months. Sometimes in, uh, in I remember in Thailand when uh, we'd enter the Vasa, uh, we'd, I, I was brought up in the uh, Anglican Church in the United States, a high Anglican. So we were, when we, when we had a Lenten period every year where we had, we had uh, during Lent, we would make um, vows. We'd give up something we really liked and very attached to for the Lenten season. So usually, as a child, that would be like sweets. Give up eating sweets for a month. Lenten period was a month. So I remember that became part of the custom. My childhood was giving up sweets. And then during that whole month, 
I looked forward eagerly for the end of Lent. <laughs> because then I could eat sweets again. And somehow giving up sweets uh, made the anticipation during that month, at the end of the Lent period, you know, it even heightened the attractiveness of eating sweets. So by the end of the Lent, you know, then of course everybody was giving me sweets, you know, and I could indulge in eat as many as as I could manage, get sick probably. <laughs> Mindfulness was not part of this practice, by the way. <laughs> but it was so so it was it was like to renounce things, you know, to give up something you like, uh uh, during this Lenten season, and it's good training, but it was based on this, um, not based on on awareness, but on a tradition of uh, that that it is good to give up things that one should renounce and give up, or try to, you know, reduce one's obsessions or attachments to things like uh, for child uh, sweets. <coughs> So when I uh, became a bhikkhu in Thailand, I tended to see Wasa retreat as, uh, I mean, the mind, the, the, the program was already in the brain. You know, like if they compared Wasa to Lent sometimes. So immediately my mind started thinking, I have to give up all kinds of things. So in the first few years of my, my monastic life in Thailand, where, you know, when the range retreat began, the idea was I should give up all kinds of things. I'd, I'd make various aditanas or determinations to make my life as miserable during these three months as possible. So this was, uh, so then because, you know, Lent's only one month, but in Vasa's three months. And, uh, but it seemed like, you know, a noble thing to do. It was very idealistic. And, uh, and it seemed like it was good and praiseworthy. But then, of course, the, the mindfulness was, of course, the point, was what was emphasized, was not just to, to do some kind of self-torture, you know, to, to, to kind of make your life miserable because it was good for you to be miserable and do without things and, and kind of develop strong will and, and resistance to temptation and, and not be weak and wishy-washy and give in to, to temptation. Uh, the emphasis in, uh, in uh, the Buddhist sense was on awareness. Now, at first I didn't really fully appreciate what awareness is. When I in the first few years of my monastic life, I mean, I thought I understood it. You know, pay attention, be aware, and all that. I certainly understood the words, and that, but I didn't. I still was very much doing things in order to get something. You know, the uh, the whole the sense of myself, my conditioned personality, me as a person, me as a monk my practice, my vasa, was still very much the, the motivation for the whole thing. 
you know, I've got to get my jhanas, I've got to purify my mind, I've got to get rid of greed, hatred, and delusion. Uh, these are uh, defilements, my defilements, my kilesas. There's still, even the interpretation of the Dhamma teachings were made in this personal way. Because this is how my mind is conditioned. This, is the, this was the cultural conditioning, the sense of I'm a sinner, I've got to purify myself, get rid of greed and anger and lust and ignorance. By doing something to, you know, to, to get, to get rid of these habits. To make myself into somebody else. To make myself, convert myself from an impure person to a pure person. <clears throat> and so mindfulness, uh, even though I had moments of it, the, generally the, the attitude was very much uh, one of, of a self, uh, motivation. I, in those days I liked to do things, you know, like prove that I could be tough, that I could fast, that I could go without food for long periods of time, that I could mix all my food together in my alms bowl and eat eat just like you swill. And, uh, and uh, I could, uh, you know, not lay down and I could do all kinds of ascetic practices because uh, you know, I found, you know, it did bring up this, this sense of, of willpower and strength. And I like that feeling. I like to see myself as strong and dedicated and serious with a lot of willpower. And, I, I, and the opposite was afraid of being a weakling, of being weak and wishy-washy and mediocre and, and being a failure. So, so I found the first few years of just trying to be very, very, uh, in time to say, very, very gang. Trying to do everything better than everybody else. And, uh, and be the best and the toughest. I found that, you know, quite li- I got quite high on it, actually. And then it, but it also increased the amount of conceit. Because I noticed, you know, the monks that weren't, you know, didn't, weren't doing all these things, I, looked, I, I couldn't help but look down on. You know, I could, you know, see them as not, not as good as I am. I'm, I'm much better than they are because I'm tougher, stronger, more dedicated, more serious than everything else. But fortunately, Ajahn Chah was a, a wise teacher, so he, he would point this out. You know, he'd, he wasn't kind of going along with my, my ego uh, obsessions. And he would point yeah. in, in a way, not in an in a intimidating or accusing way, but in quite skillful way that I could see this in myself. I, could, I began to notice what I was actually doing. Then uh, I remember I used to do a lot of fasting, going without food, and and uh, and then we had only one meal a day anyway in, in Thailand. So um, you know I, you have what you, I had to ask permission to go without food. 
so I'd have to, the first time I went a week without food. And Ajahn Chah, you know, said, you may do so. And, but he didn't say, you know, this was a good thing or a bad thing. He just, and when I requested it, he just said, okay, that's all right. And then, uh, then that, the first time I fasted, I didn't really know how to fast, so I just thought I'd refuse everything. So, uh, I, could, I could allow myself to drink water. But um, I became dehydrated because there was no, I wasn't taking any salt. So I, a week of, of uh, where water would just go through me and I became dehydrated. Uh, I was totally miserable physically just uh, for, you know, for a week, just utterly feeling miserable and, and looking forward to when, you know, be, uh, being proud also. I wasn't about to break my determination, so... I kept to my determination. I wasn't going to show weakness by giving in and eating. So I managed to to go the week, and and of course uh, it was uh, quite a painful, quite unpleasant experience. But I did have the sense of success. I actually had done such a thing. And then I became. Then somebody pointed out, you know that if you don't have salt either, you know, the water doesn't stay. You know, you, you get dehydrated even though you're drinking water. <clears throat> so the next time I, I did it with salt, took salt, <laughs> and, and tried various other ways of fasting. But uh, anyway, I got quite, you know, quite, quite good at it. And then one day, I remember several years later, I went up to Ajahn Chah, we were in the dining hall, and so I went up and I asked him, you know, I'd like to go on a fast for uh, a week. And he said, oh, you really, you know, why don't you just be like the other monks, you know, and he pointed to the monk sitting next to him, he just comes and eats his meal, goes, you know, he doesn't make a problem about food. And, and it suddenly struck me, uh, yeah, I'm always making life into some difficult experience. And I always think that somehow I've got to come to terms with eating and food and consuming. And, <clears throat> and, uh, and yet, in terms of the tradition, the Dutanga tradition that, we're, that we, we, we kept there, this one meal a day, it was, you know, Bindabat and then one meal a day. It was, it was a greed convention. But, uh, and of course, people who are used to three meals a day might consider it asceticism, but it's not. It's not a hardship, really. I didn't find one meal a day, you know, hardship or physically uh, disabling. But I began to get some insight into the convention of established uh, convention and how to use it makes it easy you know get, have you just you just do what you know you you surrender to the convention and just do it that way rather than making endless problems around conventions complicating them uh, trying to make them better stricter more ascetic <coughs> 
And so Lung Po Chow is very good at this. He did it within the conventions, uh, uh, Vinaya restraints and Tudonga conventions. And this, was, this wasn't in order to increase one's ego or sense of oneself or to destroy defilements, but to develop and increase awareness. So that was quite an insight for me, you know, to, to actually recognize the, the use of a convention, how to use a convention for awareness. Where my Western conditioning was always, it was picking and choosing, you know, you know, so a lot of the conventions, I couldn't see the point, a lot of the Vinaya rules and the tradition or the way they did it in, in Wat Ba Pong, and I could, you know, endlessly quibble and doubt and and make problems around the way we were living, <coughs> because I could, you know, I could think, well, this isn't necessary. This isn't. This isn't. You know, I don't see the point of this, and why do we have to do it like this? So there was always a sense of me uh, coming in and and commenting, criticizing, or. Or getting very, uh, deter- you know, attached. It has to be done like this, and no other way. When the Westerners started coming a few years later, you know, and trying to, to, uh, to, you know, I was supposed to instruct them in life in the in the forest monastery, and of course they were they would do the same thing. They say, well, I don't see the point of this, or this is silly, or why do we have to do it like that? Or, or others would. You know, and then you get very rigid. You, know, you do it like this. This is the way you do it, and it has to be like this, or it's wrong. And you get very heavy. I get very heavy, and and that, you know, get very critical and resentful towards anyone who, who kind of, questioned it. So these are the you know just beginning to see how, uh, you know, the the different the two extremes of blind attachment or resistance or rejection. So that was awareness that noticed the extremes, wasn't it? Again, to note in myself, notice what it was like to have to to hold to something and say, it has to be like this or it's wrong, in a very rigid, uh, inflexible attitude, or... uh, just say, oh, I don't see it. So it isn't important. Go ahead. It doesn't matter. And just dismiss something that I that I didn't, you know, because I didn't particularly like it or agree with it. So, uh, just by then, it was through this process I began to appreciate what mindfulness really is. And the traditional forms. Like Vinaya, actually, it looks complicated, you know, in terms of if you try to read the Vinaya Pitaka and, and, and all the commentaries and all that, it looks incredibly complicated, detailed and, and uh, fussy. But actually, the point of it is, is, not, is, is not to complicate, but to simplify. So it's, uh, the point is to learn, to learn it so that it you know, in terms of its conventional form so that one can reflect from there. 
the boundaries, the restraints that we take on when we uh, train under the vinya. Then the um, Dhamma also. When you think of all the Dhamma teachings, the Abhidhamma and then, then all the suttas, and uh, when we think, uh, you know, it seems, you know, it would take years to learn all that. All the scriptures plus the Abhidhamma and, and the commentaries and then one can ex- expand into Mahayana, Chinese, uh, Tibetan, Sanskrit, Pali, goes on and on and on and on. In a lifetime you couldn't possibly learn it all that way. Because the nature of conditioned phenomena is to, is to proliferate. It just, you start here and then it just proliferates out. So in, in, the, in the, the Dhamma teaching is very simple. And that all that arises ceases, all, all Dhamma is not personal, not a self. So in, in these two senses, Sape Sankarani Cha Sape Tama Anatta, these are the, you know, these are the, the guide, the, you know, what the Dhamma is in terms of it, a succinct uh, reflection. It's not to grasp that in some kind of blind way, but it's for reflection. All conditions are impermanent. The pace and karani cha. And so to see impermanence, you have to, you know, you have to, you know, you, if you think about impermanence and, and uh, so forth and try to, you know, analyze uh, and, and form theories and, and that, then even impermanence becomes incredibly complicated. You know, different types of impermanence and change and time and material and psychic and emotional. <coughs> but in uh, terms of simplification, reflecting on the way it is, then, then impermanence is, uh, all sankaras are impermanent. Sankaras are conditions. What, what, what is created, what comes forth, what exists in the present, what is, begins and ends. So that whether it's coarse or refined, subtle, good, bad, whatever, right or wrong, uh, conditioned phenomena, its very nature is impermanent. So then this, this mindfulness is around Noticing impermanence, reflecting on impermanence is like this. You know, observing how you were waiting. This is the beginning of the vasa. And how one can also project immediately the beginning, the ending. When is the katina ceremony this year? And immediately the mind skips to the end of the vasa, to the katina ceremony. Three months, you know, can seem like a long time. We've got three months of vasa. And uh, then, the, then the mind, uh, you know, we can make a complicated vasa out of this. We could really 
you know, proliferate endlessly about this vasa and what we're going to do with it and and what we should or shouldn't do or what we want or don't want from it. Which is all right, not saying you that there's anything wrong with that, but what I'm pointing to is uh, encouraging this awareness of the convention. In just what it is, vasa, how does that affect you? The sense of entering, entering vasa. And only you know it's, it's like this. And, and so when I think entering vasa, I have this sense of something ahead, you know, beginning something, entering, it's like this. And, and, and it's a reflection, it's a observing how that, that concept affects me. Then at the end of the vasa, I contemplate, this is, the vasa is coming to an end, this is the, this is the Pavarana day, vasa is finished, ending. It's different, isn't it? Something's finished, you aren't looking forward, you the, the, the whole vasa then is a memory. Right now, vasa 2004 is, uh, is potential, is possibility, isn't it? The, three, the next three months, is, there's all kinds of possibilities, potentiality. Uh, we could anticipate, we could hope, we could determine, we could... Uh, Hope everything just, you know, we get enlightened during this vasa. Or we can just dread it, you know, another vasa, another, another being stuck here in three months, and, and we could make it into, you know, we could see it in terms of, of uh, anticipating something, you know, dread, that we dread or don't want. But awareness then is. You know, it's like this. Dreading is like this. Anticipating the sense of, or hoping for something, or, or the sense of potential, of uh, possibility, is like this. The unknown, isn't it? What hasn't happened yet, what we don't remember, is like this. The end of the vasa, then it's known, isn't it? It's memory. During the vasa, we did, I did this and I experienced that, and, <laughs> and we remember. So then, this awareness is is uh, is what we're encouraged to use. What I advise, what I encourage you to to do. So you're actually learning how to use convention or awakening, rather than just blindly adhering, conforming, or rejecting them. You know, this, uh, it isn't, th th this form is, you know, it's, um, how does it affect you? Restraint with Vinaya and, and uh, all that, how does it, you know, what is it, that sense of restraint, of, of living within boundaries, of conforming to tradition. 
not trying to justify it or promote it or or uh, or criticize it, but just learning how to recognize that uh, it's like this. I used to feel very in the uh, training in Thailand the first few years. I used to feel very uh, kind of uh, suffocated by it. I felt, you know, the, uh, coming from a very free, liberal, kind of hedonistic life before into this very orthodox, uh, very restrained monastery in northeast Thailand. Uh, I just felt uh, very, uh, like I was being suffocated all the time. This felt is like I'm, I've, they put me in a straitjacket. <clears throat> so I used to, because of that, then I'd, you know, I'd go through various, uh, a sense of, of some rebelliousness. Or I could become very critical of it, you know, because I, if you feel suffocated, you think it's their fault. It's it's this tradition, this 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 situation is doing it to me. But because of the wisdom of the teacher, I you know he would he could get me to see what I was creating around it. Can I really blame the tradition for this feeling of suffocation or? Am I suffoc Am I creating this? These are the, you know, the the way of inquiry. What am I doing? What is it? How am I holding this that makes me feel so threatened or so uh, trapped within these boundaries? And uh, then I began to have insights into seeing how, you know, the, the, the habit, tendency, the personality, the thing was to resist restraint. The, I was conditioned to rebel and resist conformity. I was always, I'm from a kind of background where I didn't like to conform. I always liked to, to be, in, I consider myself a non-conformist. Member, uh, pride. I took great pride in seeing myself as a nonconformist, and I looked down at all those American people that just conformed <laughs> to the establishment. You know, there's a kind of snobbery in it. And then finding myself within uh, in, in a convention, monastic convention. Then I respected, you know, I certainly was attracted to it and respected it, but it did bring up these emotional reactions. And so that once I began to see this, this resistance, uh, that, was the, that was what was suffocating me. It was not the, not the convention, but the, the way I resisted it and, re and, uh, and resented restraint or restriction on my what I want, what I want to do, how I want to live. So in, in life here in the monastery, really reflect on this life is uh, how to, you know, that to me, if I determined 
many, many years ago, if I'm going to be a bhikkhu, I want to enjoy my life as a monk. I want to make it, a, you know, I want to live my life so it's, it's a pleasure. It's, a, it's something that, that I like. I like living this life. I don't want to see it as just an endless kind of conformity and restraint and um, a binding and, uh, and, a, and a kind of become totally kind of uh, deadened by conformity to convention. Become institutionalized by the convention. So then, uh, because the, the aim you know, with, with Buddha, the teaching of the Lord Buddha, there's always for liberation. He was never one who, who laid down commandments, you do this or you'll be punished, uh, you know, or was using the carrot and stick practice, reward and punishment. It was the, the whole essence of the Buddha's teaching is wakening, wake up. look at the way it is, really uh, notice, observe. <clears throat> so then the, then the monastic form began to see instead of just something that restrained and prevented me from doing what I want, began to see it as a kind of blessing, as a simple life, a lovely lifestyle, you might say in modern parlance. As it is, it's a lovely lifestyle, as I as I experience it. It's a beautiful way to live one's life that benefits myself, and and you can see how much it benefits others. How the effect of of a monastery like today just the, uh, it was rather uh, busy and uh, demanding day, but how many you know people. Uh, one can reach and and uh, how many you know gives the the uh, forums and the possibilities for for teaching and for uh, meeting people who also experiencing awakening to the suffering and the the problems of the conditioned realm and then the the aim of course is to is the uh, is the liberation, not the annihilation of convention, but being liberated from restriction, not through being doing what one desires, but through being fully aware and not bound, no longer identified within the restrictions of convention. Because as long as we identify with whatever conventional forms, ideals, or whatever you want to call them, they are boundaries and, uh, and limitations that, that arise and cease. So the aim of the Buddhist liberation is the deathless, the ultimate liberation from restraint, restriction, birth and death. So I offer this as a reflection. <clears throat>